0: Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of meaningful sport. Welcome back to the second part of our conversation with Dr. Darren Stamp, where we explore the complexities of athlete transitions within professional sport, with the focus on football in the UK. During and after their careers, athletes go through various negotiations of identity, experience strong emotions, and face tensions in navigating relationships on and off the field. In this conversation with Darren, we are addressing some of the limitations in psychological and individual-oriented approaches to athlete transitions and look into relational and bodily dimensions that shape athletes' transition journeys. As mentioned, my guest today is Dr. Darren Stamp. Darren played professional football before carving out his career as an academic. He wrote his PhD thesis at the University of Hull, with a focus on the contextual complexities of transitions through and out of professional football, and much of it drawing also from his personal experience. Currently, he's the deputy head of school for health, education and sport at the university campus of North Lincolnshire. Welcome back to the second part of the podcast, Darren. And so I really enjoyed our first part where we talked more about the relational dynamics and how the team dynamics, the family, all these relationships really influence the way that uh, players navigate their careers. But so for the second part, what I thought would be really nice and what I guess we both agree is a neglected dimension of of the scholarship on athlete development transitions is really like the embodiment and the more emotional dimension as well. And so. I have the book here, Exercise and Well-Being After High Performance Sport, which is a new book, I think came out this year, edited by Luke Jones, Zoe Avner, and Jim Dennison, And you actually wrote the chapter there. And this seems to be the first book out there that is really addressing like, the bodily dimension of retirement transition. And then how do former elite athletes, professional athletes then relate to their bodies and exercise after retirement? So let's first talk just a little bit about that embodied dimension, um, of transitions, more broadly. And then we will look a little bit into your, like the ordinary autoethnographic input you have in the book. Intro, I think you can jump in from (laughs) where you want to.
1: Yeah. No, that's fine. Um, I think again, from my perspective, when I, when I did look at the literature around transitions and when I looked around the emotions involved in transition, much of the research made reference to emotions and emotional experiences that athletes went through in terms of their transitions. And again, it seemed to provide more of a psychological understanding of these emotions in terms of them being, it was more presented as cognitive thoughts, I always thought. So as much as people discussed these emotions, it was never how they actually felt we'd read about people's frustrations and relief or anything related to their transitions but never in terms of how that of the embodied element of that I suppose so from my point of view it was as I approached the end of my career and I was coming to that transition I tried to capture that embodied element and what was interesting is that when I interviewed my participants from my PhD, and I tried to explore that in a lot more detail in terms of how, trans- how they experienced their transitions from that embodied perspective, they struggled to share, they struggled to recall what that actually felt like and that embodied element of these transitions, which is why my autoethnographic strand of my PhD tried to really focus in on those embodied feelings and what that actually felt like to be part of. Like, I shared examples in my PhD where I'm sat in the changing room and my legs feel like lead and my chest feels sunken and I've got tears running down my eyes pretty much because I've missed out on the chance of Wembley. And for me, that was trying to offer a different perspective about what that emotion of like disappointment and frustration actually felt like from that embodied perspective. And so, like you said, that the book chapter that I contributed to Luke's book another opportunity for me to discuss and to contribute in terms of the last game that I actually played in my career to draw from the actual embodied nature of what that actually felt like in that last game. And just for people that haven't read the book, the experience of, it was humiliating for myself because it was something that being physically fit and being able to play if you like, was almost a given and accepted that to play football, you needed to be fit enough to do it. and that last game that I actually played in, and the example that I provide where I've literally crumpled to the floor because my thighs didn't have the didn't have anything in the tank to carry me to get to the ball. I was 38 at the time and I'd, because I'd moved into coaching alongside my playing. I didn't train with the players on a weekly basis and like just accepted that I'd be able to perform without doing the training element of it. So my body had been conditioned and, or should I say, unconditioned. So I didn't have that fitness element or the physical capacity to perform how I thought I could. And so to crumple to the floor was, was, like I say, humiliating. But then to hear the murmurings around the ground from the crowd, to hear the, opposition laughing at what had gone on again this all had an impact on how i experienced that transi- or that emotion if you like and how that then informed my eventual transition out of playing football where i got to the point where yeah I, I can't be doing that on a football pitch where i can't even run because my legs won't allow me to do from that embodied perspective it was almost and people are read or seeing people talk about their bodies giving up and not being able to do what they once could and I actually uh-huh. lived through that and it wasn't a, nice, wasn't a nice place to be. But that autoethnographic perspective enabled me to really delve into that a little bit deeper in terms of how that actually did feel to try to add that to the literature. And again, from that emotional perspective to then make sense of it with the work of Burkitt who talks about the embodied nature of an emotion being the integral and the, the most important aspect of it because we need to feel something within the body physiologically, physically before we can then even begin to make sense of it from a cognitive perspective in relations to the people that we involved with at mm-hmm. that moment in time as well.
0: But so you say that towards the end of your career, you were coaching and you were actually not training with the players. Mm. Did you have this like sense that your body can no longer do it? Or was it the sort of you thought you'll still be able to do it and this came as a sort of surprise what happened in the last game
1: it, do you know what it came as a surprise because as a substitute like I, i'd come to that point in my career where i was only ever coming on for the last 10 uh-huh. minutes if needed so i would only come on if we were losing in a game and we needed to change the tactics and i could go on as a target man and we, they could just have a target <laughs> to hit up and then i could try and win my headers for people to try and run on to mm-hmm. to, to create chances and so in my mind 10 minutes on the football pitch I've, I've ne- as, as a player I was never the fittest I was never the quickest I was never physically anywhere near most of the players that, that I shared a changing room with but I always felt that I'd be able to do a 10 minute stint on a football pitch and just stand yeah. up front and be a target and so when I had a 40 yard sprint to do because the ball's been played over the top and all I can see is the goalkeeper so it's just me running through to the goalkeeper I don't think I'd ever had that in my career, so I'd never experienced that because I'd never had pace. And so to actually have to do that and to not even make it, that's when I decided, you know what, that's it's time to call it a day. (laughs)
0: That's it. (laughs) And then in the chapter you wrote, then you reflect that it actually took a long time that you didn't do any sport or exercise at all.
1: No, and I think from my perspective, that I saw that Uh as a healthy thing. I saw that as a healthy thing because... I suppose exercising was like my choice. I, I, I had an option whether to exercise or not. And I think something that I hadn't really realized is that every day I would wake up and I would get ready and I would go and train at half past nine, 10 o'clock religiously. And it would just, it was something that I just did. I never questioned why or I never questioned what we were doing, when we were doing it, how we were doing it. I just went and I did it. And that became ingrained in something that you did on a daily basis. Even when I moved into part-time on a Tuesday night and on a Thursday night and on a Saturday, start at half past six, finish at half past eight, the session would be planned for you. This is what we're going to do and this is how it's going to work. And it's something that you didn't really have a choice to do because you was part of the team and because you was a footballer. That's mm-hmm. what you did. And I think when I took a step back and I didn't have anything that I had to go to at half past nine in the morning, I didn't have to go to at half past six on a night. It was like nice to just put my feet up and watch telly instead of going out on an evening. And Or do you know, if I wanted to, I could go out for a run. And it might be, and there was times where I would, like at random occasions on a Wednesday night, I'd think, do you know what, I'm going to go for a run mm-hmm. tonight. And it was lovely to be able to do that. But yeah, over the, over the, over the course of around five years, did hardly anything that I would class as exercise, but it was nice because it was healthy for me to have the choice to not yeah. do it. Yeah,
0: it's very different from in my PhD I did life life story interviews with runners. And with them it was more like mm. there was not really even the clear point of retirement because they'd always done the running A lot by themselves. And it's a self-organized activity, Mm -hmm. even if you're like a national or even international level athlete. And then many of them would just continue running, right? So it's not... And some of them would say that it took them like half a year or one year to scale down the training, that I have no more goals. I shouldn't use all this time to run anymore. I should maybe focus a bit more on my job and things like that. And so it's... Also, I think the relational dynamics, what we talked about in the first part, also plays a role in terms of mm. football and going to the training session and everything's organized for you. And then that's gone and then you can decide to do whatever you do, whereas running that most runners do by themselves and it's such a routine that many of them who I talk to, they a lot of them just continue doing almost the same thing not everybody but many of them yeah
1: no and I th- I think there's professional footballers will still play maybe five-a-side football afterwards and still take part in some football in some capacity but for me it was nice to just switch off and to not be involved and I did have invites like my friends would constantly be peppering me now that you've finished, you can come and play for us on a Thursday night and we can, we've got a five-a-side team, you'll be able to come and play for us. And for a couple of years, two, three years, I, I just didn't want to. I didn't want to take part in that. There was a period where I, I did play for a, a couple of months and actually enjoyed it because it was a completely different atmosphere. It wasn't as pressurised. There was no supporters booing <laughs> or, or cheering. It was a completely different atmosphere. And so it was something that I actually enjoyed. But then at the same time, It was nice to be able to say, no, do you know Mm -hmm. what? I don't want to do it this week. I I don't want to, I I didn't commit to it every week. It was, I could dip in and choose when I actually played football, which was a big difference. If you you could never turn around as a full-time professional or even in semi-professional and say, I'm not going to play this game. I'll see you next week. Because it was, it's not the done, that's, you're a full-time professional and that's your Mm -hmm. job, if you like. So it was a completely different environment and surroundings that I enjoyed the freedom I actually felt like I had a lot more freedom and it was something that for me was healthy.
0: And when we are talking about the embodied experience, I wonder how your body then adapted to, you had already been scaling down training, but then you might have long periods that you actually wouldn't exercise at all. I guess your back could start aching or whatever it could be from going from completely different routine to to yeah much less sport and uh, exercise
1: yeah and I suppose a funny part well I say funny it wasn't funny at the time but if I did ever go for a, a run just by myself if I'd fancy a random run one night I'd regularly pull my calf I'd pull a muscle just going for a jog and a run and it used to infuriate me in terms of I'd only go for a 15 minute 20 minute jog and my calf would pull and so I'd walk the last five minutes because I couldn't do it and as much as I was never, like I said, I was never the, the quickest. I was never the fittest, but there was always a, I, I always had a enough fitness in the tank to be able to play the role that I did. And in terms of my physical fitness, I'd always say that like it was where I needed to be and I didn't need to be anything more than what I actually was. But yeah, the, to go for a 20 minute jog and to not last it because my, my calf gave way was like frustrating but at the same time, it was like acceptance that if I did want to do more, then I would have to do it more regularly. I would have to commit to it. And it's not just, and that's where I, I realized, you know what? You don't want to do it. You don't want to be mm-hmm. running every day. You don't want to be running every week. So that's just a decision that yeah. I made at that time. And I talk about in the book chapter, how, um, I started doing workouts in my living room like bizarre because when I was a professional footballer I hated the gym hated every time that we'd do some group activity and press ups and sit ups and weights and everything like I used to hate it but what the book chapter provided me with is a different perspective of why I hated it and in that professional environment there was always always negative feedback around my I don't want to say my physical fitness or my strength or my ability but I always associated it negatively with the comments that would come from other people. And so, for example, if we was to do the plank, then I would never be able to hold the plank for longer than or anywhere near any of the other players. And I used to swear that there was some mathematical formula or explanation as to why at six foot three, the plank is harder for me than it is to somebody that's five foot seven or five foot eight because of the distance between the two points. And But the manager would never have it and it was always, come on, stop, pick it up. And I'd constantly feel like I was being targeted when we was ever doing anything like that. Whereas in the safe confines of my living room, I, I could do the plank and do you know what? After 40 seconds, when I'd had enough, I'd drop to the floor and that was it. But for me, again, it was like that freedom in that safe environment that I could drop to the floor. Whereas in the team environment, be petrified and I'd be like I'd be fearful of the, the reprimands mm-hmm. had I done so in there
0: yeah so it actually so... took you quite a long time to develop this more <laughs> positive relationship with, with training
1: <laughs> yeah it really did and and it enabled me to look at exercise in a different mm-hmm. way as well I now me and my, my wife we now go walking at least three nights a week we walk mm-hmm. on a weekend whenever we can and I love it absolutely love it and again and I, I never used to regard walking as exercise because to me there was never any point in it it wasn't intense enough I didn't ever think you got anything from walking whereas now at this stage of my life it's an excellent form of exercise and this was something that as much as was so many downsides to COVID it actually brought us as a family together in terms of being able to get out and mm-hmm. walk and be together during that period so it's something that we've actually carried on and and loved doing even yeah. now which is great.
0: And looking at your interviews that you did with other former players, do you see parallels in terms of their transition out of sport and this relationship with, they have with exercise afterwards, or do you also see some different pathways over there?
1: No, it's interesting because two out of the three didn't do anything, didn't do, an, and having said that. The interviews took place probably two, three years after yeah. their retirement. So it was probably the same window that we're talking about in terms of my understandings as well. But for one player in particular, it was, he couldn't, it, he'd be invited to play in um, five-a-side games with his friends and play on a Sunday morning. But to him, his career was more the buzz of scoring goals in front of thousands of fans and the adoration and what came with it in terms of that Um the buzz of scoring and and the feelings of of success, if you like, whereas he knew that he couldn't replicate that in front of five people on a Sunday morning where he might score five against people that can't run and he would never get that same gratification or that same reward that he did from being a professional. So he never played any football despite having the offers, just as the other two didn't either. So I think it's interesting that as much as people say it's not an important aspect of it, the, the crowds are a big aspect of people's careers because it does give you that kind of, when mm. it's good, when it's not so good, it's, it can be a difficult mm. place. But it's like that, I don't know. At the clubs that I've been at and with the people that I spoke to in the PhD, you do tend to develop a rapport with the fans as well. You develop a close rapport and they have that respect for you. And I suppose on a, in a like Sunday morning or in a five-a-side environment, with there being no fans there. There's not the same experience, if you like, but everybody's different. And this is the really interesting thing for me is that I've spoken to three former professional footballers. There's thousands. And if each and every single professional footballer will have completely different transitions throughout their career, a completely different transition out of professional football, and do completely different things at the end of their career. So for me, I was never trying to find the generalizable total understanding of transition out of professional football or I was just offering different perspectives of how people had experienced it from that relational mm-hmm. perspective
0: yeah. but I think do you think it's interesting what I also saw with some of the young athletes that I interviewed as this project that I also mentioned in the first part that some of them if they had to stop at the age of 18 or 19 that they might have little interest for sport after that which i guess from some perspective you can think that it's a little bit sad because when they started out their careers they probably loved doing what they do and then they might see like little point in that because they will their like career higher level is gone and then perhaps exercising you mentioned not having the spectators and all of that maybe that's not interesting either so I don't know what are your thoughts is it sad or is it a good thing that then they can choose to do something else
1: yeah it's I think it depends on the individual and I think now something that kind of frustrates me is that in in professional football and you see the the academies that are at play and children as young as six are signing for academy teams and for me there's no need for for children to be at an academy at the age of six because we need to we need young children to to enjoy sport for what it is and the fun element of it and playing with friends and like the lack of regulation and just kicking a ball about and just enjoying the space and the freedom to do what they want whereas at at six years old now you're seeing them in like training sessions and as much as people say they want, but they're judged on a like daily basis, weekly basis. When at six years old, there shouldn't be any fear, any worry about that whatsoever. They should be loving the sport for what it is. And not only that, loving different sports as well. If they're being signed to an academy and training two, three nights a week and then playing on a weekend, that's taking up different time that they could be spending playing badminton, cricket, tennis, hockey, golf, other different sports that, they maybe can't do because of their kind of commitment to football from such a young age so much like the people that you'll have interviewed if they're at an academy from six up until the age of 13 and then a release from that academy there's no reason no wonder that child's going to fall out of love with the game because it's something that they've built their dreams on from the age of six when is there any need to do that my argument is no, no not by any stretch of the imagination and children used to need to love sport for what it is and love physical activity for what it is that fun element of it where they can play with their friends doing climbing frames jumping around running around that it's that freedom that they will enjoy and hopefully take with them into their for, for well for mm-hmm. life longer rather than just for the sake of like a, mm-hmm. a football career
0: yeah
1: yeah it's, it's something that, that that does frustrate me and like having been to Oslo in February and spent a bit of time with Marco Sullivan and discussed some of the different things that we can't seem to get our heads around at the moment he's trying different initiatives in Stockholm with in terms of it being an academy but not having it as as strict in terms of having a hundred kids involved rather than just a select 11 for a certain team so there are initiatives going on that are trying to expand and develop new ways of thinking around this because but again it might just be the narrative it might just be People's understanding of what academies stand for in terms of the children might be developing more holistically than many give them credit for, and and we don't know mm-hmm. enough about that. So, I think it's a really important aspect of that sport element and phys- being physically active for life. And it's something that I'd love to get my teeth into from a research perspective yeah. if I had the time. But obviously, in the role that I'm at at the moment, I don't have the time. But hopefully, people can mm-hmm. be doing it for yeah. me. <laughs>
0: One of the things in Martin Roderick's work that you cite a lot and I cite a lot, and what he's talked often that like a football career is something that is sold as a dream come true, or that's the narrative that is out there, right? But then as players like progress in their careers, they at least some of them will more and more start to experience it as just a job and maybe become a little bit he uses the term disidentify with their profession, right? And I guess parts of that were also involved in what you were sharing stories of your own career, right? That it becomes more and more a job as you're moving along in your career. Do you see ways how people could somehow sustain a more... I don't know how we put it. So if they start more with this idea of sport being as their vocation or something that is more intrinsically rewarding or something like that. So is this movement towards sport being just a job (laughs) inevitable or is there like something that within this relational network as well that could be done to support Players to somehow move through their careers, still sustaining some of those reasons why they started out at the beginning.
1: And I think there's a couple of ways that I could look at this. And I think, first and foremost, I think the more that we can encourage children to engage in all sorts of physical activity from a young age is the best way possible. Having said that, what's not helping and what the biggest challenge is is that when stories and and examples are shared of a professional footballers earning hundreds of thousands of pounds a week, then there's no wonder that, that families, let alone the children, but the parents of the children are dreaming big for their child to become that elite footballer. And the money's now got to that level, at the top level, that it's beyond ridiculous. You can't even fathom the amounts of money that's been bandied around in professional football in the Premier League. It's extortionate and it's got to an embarrassing point now where you think about during that COVID pandemic when nurses that might be getting £25,000, £30,000 a year and professional footballers are getting 10 times that in a week for playing a game of football, it just doesn't add up. It doesn't add up at all. And so these are the challenges that we face as a society in terms of that the difference between sport and doing it as a job and doing it for enjoyment the the rewards and the financial incentives for that job element of it is too much for people to turn down and to strive towards and again from my perspective the amount of it's not the children necessarily who will watch match of the day and see the Harlands and the Salahs and dream of being that player it's now become a little bit more than just being that role model and the pe- the person that scores the goals and that's on match of the day and is the star player it's it's become more of that financial element for people as well which is hard to see it going away if I'm being yeah. honest at the moment it just seems to be escalating yeah. which is beyond ridiculous it's that could be one of our biggest challenges but again it's a tricky one and I don't think anybody will find the answer anytime soon but it's great that researchers like around trying to explore different options and different avenues that that we can maybe try Mm -hmm. to go down in the future.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I think the last question then for me today would be that you mentioned there isn't that much research time for you at your, in your current role, but what are the things that you would really like to do? Or do you have at least some few things that we might expect to read from you in the future that you're working on?
1: So there's a, yeah, there's a, I don't get anywhere near as much time as I would like to be researching due to the role at the moment. But having said that, there's a couple minor, I say minor projects. So I'm part of a research group at the moment that's looking into political astuteness of community coaches as well in terms of how they manage their, their work. There's a, there is another version, another, sorry, n- not another version of the book that Luke had published in terms of access and health and being there's going to be another version of that coming out in relation to how that impacts coaching Mm -hmm. practice. So that's that's a chapter that I'm going to be writing Mm -hmm. over the course of the next year that I'm looking forward to doing. But for me, what I would love to do is again, in relation to that, to the multiple identities and the networks effect is on management as well, because I've looked at it from an athlete's perspective. You look at the professional football culture in terms of being a manager within that culture now and lose five games on the bounce and you're sacked and then you, you're moving, you're up in sticks, you're moving your family to somewhere else in the country and then you'll win eight games and be manager of the month and then two months later lose four games and you're sacked again. And again, it's how people navigate their way through that because as much as we would love to be able to say, there's this support for managers, there's all this these resources and everything, we know that there's limited ability for people to support that. So something that I'd love to be involved with further down the line again given time (laughs) but you never Never know never never. say never
0: and at least you have a couple of things that Mm. you actually have already that are now being worked on and so I will link a couple of the things that we discussed in the show notes so that people can get take a look into your work and yeah I really enjoyed this discussion thanks so much
1: brill thanks for having me Nora thank you thanks for joining us this week on physical activity researcher podcast if you like the show make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on twitter this podcast is made possible by listeners like you thank you for your support if you found value in the show we would really appreciate the rating on